A monk joined a monastery and took a vow of silence. After the first 10 years, his superior called him in and asked, do you have anything to say? The monk replied, food bad. After another 10 years, the monk again had opportunity to voice his thoughts. He said, bed hard. Another 10 years went by and again he was called in before his superior. When asked if he had anything to say, he responded, I quit. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> so that is a little bit humorous, but really complaining is a very wicked sin. Grumbling and complaining is a defining characteristic of an unbeliever. When things don't go according to their plan, they whine. When people don't live up to their expectations, they grumble. When they don't get what they want, they bicker. When their will is crossed, they protest. When they fear their circumstances or the future, they murmur. When they experience difficulties and challenges, they complain. This is not surprising response for several reasons. First, worship of self is an unbeliever's primary focus. Thus, they do not worship God. Because they sit at the center of their own universe, they view their own needs as supreme and will seek to satisfy those needs in whatever way they can. Second, because they do not worship God, there is no true thankfulness in their hearts to God. Third, they have no understanding of a sovereign God. Thus, there is no comfort that all things are under his control. Fourth, they have no real comprehension of God's goodness, which means they have no assurance that the difficulties they face are for their good. And fifth, they do not understand God's eternal purpose, so they are unable to rest in the midst of uncertain temporal circumstances. And I'm sure we could add many more things to that list. But did you notice that all five of those reasons that I gave to you are the result of having a wrong perspective of God? The reason an unbeliever is characterized by a grumbling and complaining heart is because he does not know God. Therefore, he cannot rest in the comfort of God's character. And sadly, believers are also often characterized by a grumbling and complaining heart. Though they know God through salvation, they are largely ignorant of God's character, and they do not trust in Him by faith. It is interesting to me that anxiety is the result of the same two issues. Because, excuse me, we become anxious about our circumstances or relationships because we don't know God's character as we ought to, and thus we fail to walk by faith. So fear and grumbling and complaining have a tendency to go hand in hand because they both result from an unbelief in the character of God. Often, when you wrestle with fear, you will discover that you have a tendency to grumble and complain. Have you ever thought that through? And probably from our reading in the chapter this week, maybe you started putting those things together. But when we are fearful about something Typically, that comes out in some form of complaint or grumbling or disputing about whatever that thing is that we fear. 
So today we are going to look at one particular incident where the Israelites revealed a grumbling and complaining attitude. As we consider this passage, we will see that ultimately they lacked faith in God. Their sinful attitude resulted from a fear and dissatisfaction with their circumstances. Instead of viewing their difficulty as an opportunity to trust God and grow in an understanding of His character, the Israelites <clears throat> excuse me, became angry and they accused God. So if you would please turn with me to Exodus 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And I just have to share with you that this was one of those passages that I thought, oh, it seems like it will fit well with what we were reading in our book this week because of the things that are being addressed here. But I was in for amazing surprises as I started really digging into this passage. So I hope that even in some small measure, I'm able to communicate to you guys some of the amazing truths that I discovered this week as I was going through this. There is so much more to this passage than just what we read from face value. So I will try and uh, explain some of that to you. But here we go, starting in Exodus 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So first of all, on our outline, capital A, God's test. So as you noticed in verse 1, at the end, it said there was no water for the people to drink. So small a, God was leading them. And this is very significant. It's important to note that the Israelites were being led by God with the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. They did not choose their destination, nor did Moses. God was the one that was leading them, that was deciding where they should go, when they should go, how long they should stay, all of these things. So the people followed where God was leading. God was leading them through this wilderness, and he was the one who led them straight to Rephidim, where there was what? No water. So, it wasn't as though Moses picked this place and oops, oh, he made a mistake and there was no water. God intentionally led the children of Israel to this place where there was no water. So this is important for us to recognize because this is the way of the Christian life. 
It is through trials and difficulties that we see our need and learn to depend upon our God. Thus, even when we are living in obedience to God, we may find that he leads us into difficult circumstances. It was by no mistake on God's part that he led them to a place where there was no water. God intended to use the wandering in the wilderness as an opportunity to test the children of Israel. And I want you to see that. And if you want, you can turn here, but keep your finger in Exodus because we are going to go back there. But Deuteronomy 8.2 says this, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. So this is at the end, they've been through the wilderness and now Moses is reflecting back. So our passage today is at the beginning of this wilderness experience. And then in Deuteronomy, he's reflecting back and he's saying, excuse me, um, he says that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. As God was leading the children of Israel, he was testing them so that they would know what was in their heart. God tested them not because he needed to know what was in their heart. That's very important. God is omniscient. He knows everything all the time. He already knows all of men's hearts. He tested the children of Israel so that they could know what was in their own hearts. And sadly, more often than not, they failed to keep his commandments in the midst of that. But I think there's a great application for us here as well, that as God leads us through life, even when we walk in obedience to him, he will lead us to places where we must be dependent on him. And clearly, we always must be dependent on him. But sometimes we see that more clearly than we do at other times. And the Lord wants for us to depend on him. And so he brings difficulties intentionally into our lives so that we would learn his character and we would learn to walk by faith. So B is the test. This is small b. And the test was, as I already mentioned, there was no water at Rephidim. The test should have led the children of Israel to dependence on God. They had a serious need for water, which should have resulted in crying out to the Lord to supply their need. But keep in mind that they had just experienced God's provision of manna. So this is kind of the interesting thing about the Israelites, is that they would go from one test to the next to the next, and they would respond the same way at every test. And I really want you to see this. So this is why I said, keep your finger in Exodus. And I want you to turn over one chapter to chapter 16. Because God had just generously supplied quail in the evening and manna in the morning for their need. So Exodus 16, reading in verse, uh, verses 11 through 14, it said this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel, Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing 
fine as the frost on the ground. So they had just experienced their need for food. And what did God do? He miraculously supplied their need with the manna. And so here they go and they turn almost immediately to grumbling because now they have no water. They had just experienced God's abundant generosity to provide all they needed to satisfy their hunger. And then they turn from God, even though God led them by the pillar of cloud and fire to Rephidim where there was no water. God was testing them so they could see what was in their hearts. Sadly, they had not learned from their previous test. So rather than trusting God and crying out to him in prayer to provide their need, they responded in wicked sinfulness, grumbling and complaining. I don't know about you guys, but I saw my own heart so clearly as I was studying through this. And I like to think of myself as much more spiritual than the Israelites. I think we probably all do because they get a really bad rap. But the fact of the matter is, we are all so incredibly similar to them. If you wonder why you keep struggling with the same thing again and again and again and again, you might wanna consider what's going on in my heart? Because that was what God was revealing to the Israelites. He kept bringing them to these places where they needed to cry out to him in prayer and depend on him. And they kept failing to recognize their unbelief in who he was and their lack of faith. So B, capital B, their sinful response So verse two from our text says, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So A, small a on your outline, the people quarreled with Moses. So this word quarreled means to find fault with or to make a complaint against. So this, of course, was not the first time the people had quarreled with Moses because we just looked at that with um, the manna. Sadly, this was a habitual pattern in the lives of the Israelites. It was their default setting. Whenever they faced a trial, they would instead complain and grumble and accuse. Rather than turning to God and trusting him, they looked only at the impossibility of their circumstances. So now I want you to turn back to chapter 14 and follow along with me because I want you to see this pattern. So Exodus 14, I'm going to read uh, verses 10 through 14. As Pharaoh, now remember this is just after the Israelites have left Egypt. And it says, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became what? Frightened. They are afraid of the Egyptians coming behind them. The Red Sea is in front of them. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? See any similarities with our passage? 
They're accusing Moses again of wanting to murder them. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you. Well, you what? Keep silent. Just stop talking because everything that comes out your mouth is sinful. Stop your grumbling and complaining and watch and see what God will do for you. So now turn to Exodus 15 and we'll read verses 23 through 25. So when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. So the people did what? Grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he, God, capital H, tested them. And so then we move to chapter 16. In verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. So then, obviously, the Lord provides the manna. And it says, And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. What's the next line? That I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Do you want to know why God didn't supply all the manna that they needed for the whole month or the whole year or even the whole week? Because he wanted to test them to see if they would be obedient to go out and gather the manna every day. And do you remember what happened? If they gathered more than what they were supposed to happen or supposed to gather, then the worms would come and eat it overnight as they tried to store it, except for the Sabbath, remember? And if they didn't gather it every morning, then what happened? They had nothing to eat. So God was telling them, I am going to test you to see if you will walk in obedience to my instruction. Oh my goodness, how much we can learn from this. God wants us to see what is in our hearts, the things you wrestle and struggle with, the things you fear. Do you see what is in your heart? Do you recognize the sin against God, the unbelief, the unwillingness to walk in obedience? And let me tell you, just because you walk in obedience doesn't mean that the walking is easy. Because oftentimes as we see the word of God and we have to be obedient to him, that means we are 
fighting the flesh who so craves to respond in sin and to grumble and complain and fight against the test that God has brought. I am not saying that obedience is easy, but we must be obedient to God's word because we cannot be sinful because sin is evil. It does not glorify God as we act sinfully. And it destroys not only our own lives, but those around us. It destroys our testimony. We must be faithful that when we are tested of the Lord, that we walk in obedience to his word. And it doesn't have to be big things. It doesn't have to be when you lose a child or when you lose a spouse or when you go through a terrible car accident. What about the little things that, that God uses to expose our impatience, our selfishness, our laziness? So many things that God uses to help us evaluate our own hearts. And of course, then we arrive back at our own passage. And I want you to notice three things from our passage. And I'm talking here about verse 2 and 3. And I'm going to read it just so that you understand what I'm pulling out from here. It said, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So I want you to notice the attitude, and I have three things here. So first of all, who did they go complain to? They complained to Moses. They didn't turn to God. They failed to turn to God. And number two, they found fault with Moses. And essentially what they were doing is they were putting Moses on trial. And I'm going to explain that in a little bit as, as we keep going here. But they found fault with Moses and accused him. And then number three, they demanded of Moses to provide their needs. They could have turned to God. They could have cried out to God. But instead, they complained and accused Moses. In their pride, they demanded that Moses should provide for their needs. Clearly, they had an expectation that he should give them what they needed. First of all, this is a misplaced expectation. Moses had no ability in himself to provide for their needs. They were looking to man rather than to God to provide the water they needed. And do we not oftentimes do the same thing? We look to people to bring us fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose in life, direction, instead of looking to God. And that was one of the primary issues here with the Israelites is they turned to man rather than to God. Second, there was no gratitude or humility involved in their demand. They believed Moses owed it to them to give them water. Ultimately, their complaint was against God because it was God who was in control and who had led them to Rephidim. So Vadi Bakum explained their attitude by saying that first they presumed upon God that he owed them the water. And when they didn't have any, they turned to him to accuse him 
for not providing it. So first, they presumed upon Moses and ultimately on God, and then they accused Moses and ultimately accused God. Presuming and accusing. So how often we act with a similar attitude. We presume that God owes us. He owes us political freedom. He owes us freedom of religion. He owes us safety. He owes us financial security. He owes us good health. He owes us God-fearing children. He owes us justice for a wrong committed against us. He owes us comfort. <laughs> Here's one for us in Maryville. He owes us a world without change. <laughs> he owes us a life without suffering. And he owes us a life without tragedy. And you could probably add a hundred more things to this list that we don't even often realize we presume upon God that he owes us for whatever it is that we have a desire for. He does not. And what happens when we don't get what we presume we deserve? Then we lash out and we accuse God because he did not provide what we presumed upon him. When we do not get these things, we accuse God in our hearts. Perhaps we wouldn't vocalize our accusations, but they do come out in what? Complaining, disputing, grumbling. And we may not oftentimes recognize that. I, quite a few years ago, started to recognize a pattern of complaining in my own heart. <clears throat> and I decided it would be better for me to be silent than to complain. I'm sorry. <clears throat> And so I thought, you know what, better for me just to say less words, just better for me just to not say as many things. And so it's been something over the years that I've really tried to work on so that I don't complain. But you know what? When the trials of life continue to press in and they continue to squeeze me, I explained it to Craig the other day. I said, sometimes it's like you feel like a bug that's been run over by a car and all your guts are squashed out. This is what God is doing. He's squashing out the sin. And then I hear coming out of my mouth a complaint about something, and I realize there's still some guts left. It hasn't all been squashed out of me. But I don't often recognize the sin that still remains until I hear it coming out in my conversation, and I hear the complaints coming out of my mouth. Listen to what you say. Pay attention to the words you say because oftentimes they are an indicator of what is in the heart because remember, what is in the heart will eventually come out of your mouth. And we might not say, darn it, look what God's doing to me. I cannot believe that. Goodness, I have way better Christian manners than that. But I may complain against what's going on. May even be subtle may even be a slight complaint. Maybe you wouldn't even recognize it as being such, but I ought to know. And God is testing me so that I will know what is in my heart, so that I will walk by faith in obedience to his word, trusting him 
every single place he leads in my life. So when we fear we may not get the things we expect or think we deserve, or we are afraid that we may lose them, we express our fears in grumbling and complaining. And that is oftentimes how grumbling and complaining, uh, you can see that as far as how it relates to fear, because fear oftentimes results in that complaining. So small b, the Israelites tested the Lord. In accusing Moses, they were testing the Lord. They so quickly forgot their God who had delivered them from Egypt with the ten plagues who had delivered them from Pharaoh when they crossed the Red Sea, who had provided manna and who had led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. And I'm going to read from one of the commentaries. This is Desmond Alexander, and he says this, and I think this is just such a great comparison because they ultimately forgot what God had done and instead accused God. But he says this, they moved from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt to bonding with who? The sovereign God. The two situations could not be more different. Pharaoh enslaved them against their will and sub subjects them to harsh servitude. Yahweh invites the Israelites to submit voluntarily to his lordship over them, vowing to treat them as his treasured possession. Pharaoh conscripts the Israelites to build store cities using clay bricks. Yahweh asks them to construct with precious materials a royal tent that will be his residence among them. The Israelites' life under Yahweh's kingship is decidedly different from what they experienced under Pharaoh. And yet, what do they say again and again? I do not want this sovereign God who will care for my needs. Take me back to the bondage and slavery of Pharaoh, the wickedness, the difficulty. Oh, because that is so much better. Like a dog returns to his vomit. That is us as well if we are not careful. I do not like this test. I do not like this place of trusting God. Take me back where it was easier when I could just live in my sin. Because in that moment, I would rather love my sin than rather love my God. In spite of all God had done for them, they accused God and desired to put God on trial for not fulfilling their needs in a way they desired and at a time they desired. And then I'm going to also read to you from Calvin. And he says this, Rightly then does Moses expostulate that in chiding with them, they tempt God. What madness is there in their accusing Moses of cruelty and bringing them with him out of Egypt that he might kill them and their children and their cattle in the wilderness. But the actual form of their tempting God is stated at the end of verse 7. Because they had doubted, and it says, whether the Lord was among them or not. The root of the whole evil was their unbelief because they neither ascribed due honor to God's power nor believed him to be true to his promises. This was their sin unbelief. They did not think God would be faithful 
to his promises. God brought the children of Israel into the wilderness to test them, to see what was in their hearts. But because of their rebellion, they refused to see the need in their own hearts and instead presumed upon God, accusing him when they didn't have what they needed. They had no interest in cooperating with God's purposes to humble themselves, to believe God and trust in his word and depend on him for their needs. Instead, they rebelliously tested God in their unbelief. And I'm going to read to you, this is kind of a longer quote, but it is from Jeremiah Burroughs from the, uh, what was the name of it? The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I just felt like this went so well with what we're talking about here. So he wrote this, For a man or a woman, when an affliction first befalls them, to have a murmuring heart is an evil. But to have a murmuring heart when God has been a long time exercising them with affliction is more evil. Though a heifer, when the yoke is first put upon her, wriggles up and down and will not be quiet, if after many months or years it will not draw quietly, the husbandman would rather fatten it and prepare it for the butcher than to be troubled any longer with it. So though the Lord was content to pass by that discontented spirit of yours at first, yet now that God has for a long time kept the yoke on you, you have been under his afflicting hand. It may be many years, and yet you remain discontented still. It would be just if God were to bear your murmuring no longer, and that your discontent under the affliction were but a preparation for your destruction. So you see, when a man or a woman has been long exercised with afflictions and is still discontented, that is an aggravation of the sin. Mark that text in Hebrews 12:11. Now says the scripture, no chastening for the present is joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised by it. It is true our afflictions are not joyous, but grievous. Though at first when our affliction comes, it is very grievous. Afterward, says the text, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that are exercised by it. When you have been a long time in the school of afflictions, you are a very dullard in Christ's school if you have not learned this contentment. Oh, it is a shame for any who are old believers who have been a long time in the school of Jesus Christ to have murmuring and discontented spirits. I could sit down and that's enough because we can see our own hearts in that just like the children of Israel who over and over and over had to face the same type of test long in God's school and still discontented, grumbling and complaining. That must not be us. We cannot allow ourselves to continue to grumble and complain at what God is doing and the test that he is leading us in. So see, they doubted the presence of God or they doubted God's presence. So, as we already mentioned from Calvin's quote, at the end of verse 7, what does it say? 
they asked, is the Lord among us or not? Keep in mind that this is an absurd question for them to ask. The presence of God had been with them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night ever since they left Egypt. This is how God led his people. They followed where the pillar led and settled where it stayed. To wonder if God was among them was absolutely ridiculous because it was evident that God was with them. All they had to do is look at the pillar to see the presence of God was with them. Matthew Henry says this, It is a great provocation to God for us to question his presence, providence, or promise, especially for his Israel to do it, who are so peculiar, peculiarly bound to trust him. But the same is true for us. We should not question. We are not so different from the Israelites. How often we too, by looking at our circumstances, determine that God is not with us. We doubt his presence, his help, his control, his love, his goodness, etc., 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 because we try to see God through the lens of our circumstances rather than seeing our circumstances through the lens of God's character. If his involvement in our circumstances isn't obvious, if we don't understand what he is doing, if he tarries long in the alleviation of our suffering and trials, if we fail to feel his presence, if we pray without an immediate answer, if we grow weary in well-doing, if justice to the offending party appears to have been forgotten, when our physical, mental, and emotional stamina is worn to a thread, we wonder, does God even care? Essentially, when God doesn't conform to our expectations, we too, like the Israelites, doubt his presence. But we should instead seek to emulate the example of Moses. And I do want to stop before we move on to our next point here, just to bring attention very quickly. Did you hear one of those things that I mentioned? When we do not feel the presence of God, we determine God is not with us. We do not determine who God is based on how we feel. When we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, when we face difficult trials, when we're sick, when our trial does not let up, we never should question the presence of God based on our emotions because our emotions are fleeting. And good heavens, ladies, we have all kinds of hormones <laughs> and our hormones make our feelings ebb and flow like this. If God's character is determined based on my hormonal status in that moment, I am in a very dangerous place. And we laugh, but it's serious because we start to not think right. And because we don't feel the presence of God, we determine God must not be here. He's not helping me. He's not strengthening me. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. We determine God's presence with us because he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
we understand God's character from what he has said in his word, not based on our understanding or our experience or our feelings. So instead of that, we need to emulate the example of Moses. So capital C, the righteous response in verse 4, so Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. So small a, Moses turned to the Lord. It shouldn't be Moses's turn to the Lord. Just saw that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Moses understood that the people were bringing a legal complaint against him. They wanted judgment to fall on him for bringing them out into the wilderness. And do you remember that I said, as you just read through this, there are things that aren't immediately evident? Well, I'm going to start to really share some of those things with you right now. They basically, the Israelites, basically were accusing Moses and ultimately God of trying to kill them by bringing them into the wilderness without water. The fact that they wanted to stone him was evidence of their desire for judgment. Because if you remember in the Old Testament, stoning was used as a form of judgment. So you remember what happened to Achan. When he stole the things, God said, don't take anything from Jericho. And what did Achan do? He took things that he should not have taken. And what was the judgment that was given to Achan and his family? He was stoned to death. So the Israelites understood that stoning was a act of judgment. So Moses is saying that, what does he say? A little more and they will stone me. Moses understood that this was more than just them being upset, more than just a temper tantrum. They wanted to bring judgment against Moses to put him on trial. Apparently, the situation had become heated and perhaps a bit volatile because Moses had reason to believe the people might even be inclined to stone him. But notice Moses' reaction. Unlike the people who are ruled by their desire, what does Moses do? He immediately turns to the Lord. And that needs to be us as well, to have the same heart attitude of Moses when we are tested Rather than turning to our circumstances, turning to sinful habits, we turn to the Lord and ask for His grace to help us respond in obedience to Him, making it our ambition to be pleasing to Him in the midst of that trial. Exodus 32.30 says this. On the, uh, oh, so one thing I, did, I didn't mention here is that I want you to see here that this was Moses' habitual practice. Moses was continually turning to the Lord. And what is this a mark of? It is the mark of a humble person that continually turns to the Lord. So I'm just going to give you a few passages here to show you this. So Exodus 32, 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Exodus 15, 24. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he, Moses, cried out to the Lord. Numbers eleven two. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. 
Numbers 12, 13, Moses cried out to the Lord saying, oh God, he, heal her, I pray. So you could, I mean, that's just a sampling. Moses over and over again as the trials faced him and as the trials faced the Israelites, he turned to the Lord on their behalf again and again and again and again. And that is a clear mark. If you look through the, through the scriptures to see those servants of God who walked in humility, you see a pattern of turning to God, of crying out to God, of praying to God. That needs to be our heart as well. So B, Moses obeyed the Lord. And in verse 6 at the end, it says, Moses did so. What is so? Well, that's what we're going to look at in our next point. He did what God commanded him to do. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God gave Moses an answer as to what he should do. And Moses not only cried out to God, but when God answered him, what did he do? He obeyed it. When we cry out to God in prayer, what needs to be right along with that prayer? The word of God. If we are looking for an answer to know how to respond, we have to have the word of God with us as we are crying out so that when God answers us from his word, we can then obey it. You see, if all we do is pray and pray and pray, we aren't going to have a clear answer as to how we should respond because we can't drum up in ourselves the right response. That's why we need the word of God. And then we must obey that word. And that's where sometimes, you know, we might be pretty good at that prayer thing. But you bring in the word of God, well, now you've gone too far. Because you see that, I really don't want to do that. I have to forgive that person? Mm, I don't think so. Maybe if I don't talk about it. Maybe if I don't ever see them. Then it'll be as if I forgave them. When we go to God in prayer, we need to see what his word says and we need to be a w willing at whatever the cost to ourselves to be obedient to his word. So D, God's intervention. So verse five, then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So this section here in God's answer to Moses is absolutely filled with symbolism that is super significant to understanding the importance of this text. So we don't have time to get into all of it because there is a lot here, but I'm going to pull out just some of those things that I think are super helpful and just super beautiful. So A, God commanded Moses to take elders as witnesses. So Brian Borgman pointed out that this whole scene was one of a trial, one where judgment was meted out. So God was initiating a trial with his answer. The Israelites wanted to bring judgment on Moses. Remember, we already know that because that's why they were wanting to stone him. So Moses cries out to the Lord asking what he should do to the people. So he's saying, 
What should I do to the people? They're wanting to judge me. And yet Moses knew that really what should happen? The children of Israel were being disobedient to the Lord and he knew that ultimately they were the ones that deserved judgment. Should God bring judgment on them for their sinfulness? God responds by initiating this scene here for a trial. There are several things that point to this. First, God instructs Moses to take elders with him. Now, I didn't have any understanding of why this was so significant. But here's what Brian Borgman explained. He said this, What function did the elders of Israel have? If you read your Old Testament carefully, which apparently I have not done, yikes, you will notice that the elders of Israel were also the judges of Israel. The elders would often assemble in the city gates in order to pass judgment. So the assembly of the elders was for the assembly of a trial. Very interesting. So God has set up this situation for a trial. And then God says, so be on your outline, take the staff. So the staff becomes the symbol of divine judgment. Notice how God refers to it. It was the staff with which Moses struck the Nile. God used the staff to mete out judgment on the Egyptians to turn the water into blood. It was used to take away the life-giving water of the Egyptians. But here God is going to use the staff to bring forth water from the rock. So notice the contrast going on here, that staff that Moses had was used oftentimes through many of the plagues. God called on Moses to use his staff and that's what he would, would hold up or whatever. And, and through that, God brought judgment on the Egyptians. Don't miss that. Especially as God is saying that you used with the Nile specifically, because what we have here is a need for water. And what God did in bringing judgment to the Israelites was to take away the water. So then see, God will provide water from the rock. The rock is often how God is referred to in the Old Testament. The rock is a symbol or an emblem of God himself. So this is so, so significant. So I'm going to just read a few verses here. Again, this is just a sampling, but I want you to see this very, very, very important connection. So Deuteronomy 32, 4 says this, the rock. Now, if you were looking in your Bible, you would see that rock is capitalized. It says the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 18, 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 19, 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Again and again, God is referred to as the rock. 
So remember what God's instructions are. What is Moses supposed to do with this staff of judgment? He is supposed to strike the rock, the symbolism. Do you see it? So Brian Borgman then explains this as well. He says, God is the rock. Strike the rock with the rod of judgment. In other words, here are the people who totally deserve to be punished, who totally deserve to be judged. They're the ones that should be standing before the Lord in judgment. And instead, God says, I will stand before you and you strike me. So significant. God bears the judgment instead of the people. Is this not beautiful? What is he talking about? Christ. Christ who will bear the judgment for our sin. So we have to turn to 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul refers to this very incident. So 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which which followed them and the rock was Christ. Do you see it? It's beautiful. The rock was a picture of Christ who would be judged by God taking the punishment of the people and through God's judgment on his son, he would provide living water for all who would come to him in salvation. John Gill says this, the rock being smitten with the rod of Moses typified Christ being smitten by the rod of the law and the hand of justice for the transgression of his people and how that through his having been having been made sin and a curse for them whereby the law and justice of God are satisfied the blessings of grace flow freely to them and follow them all the days of their lives as the waters of the rock followed the Israelites so then we come to our last point here, and I'm going to wrap this all up at the end. But we have a reminder of their failure. Because what did Moses name this place? Verse 7 says, He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Massa, why did they call it this? That means testing or trial. And Meribah, because it means strife or contention or lawsuit. And so they, Moses named it this as a reminder of, yes, their failure to trust God. But what else was part of this that made it so significant? that it was a picture of Christ, that even in their failure, God provided a way out. He provided the living water. 
they brought a lawsuit or a legal complaint against God, but God in his grace provided water through the judgment. So as we're closing, and I kind of want to bring this whole thing full circle here, the children of Israel feared their circumstances. They were angry at Moses and angry with God. They failed to reflect on God's previous provision for them and forgot his faithfulness. All this resulted in grumbling and complaining, fighting against God's sovereignty, and doubting his presence in the midst of their need. So where was God? Had he abandoned them to die as they accused him of doing? No, he was testing them to show them what was in their hearts and to reveal his character to them and his love and care for them. He brought them to this place so that he could provide their need for water. God does the same for us. He brings us to this point where there is nowhere else to turn so that we will see he is the provider of our needs. We too must not ask, where is God? Why doesn't God provide what I need? Why doesn't he rescue me from these circumstances? He is present and he has already provided what we need. He has already provided living water from his son, the rock who was crucified on our behalf. Do you know how I always tell you that it always comes back to the gospel? This is phenomenal to understand the significance here. We can never separate ourselves from our need for the gospel and to be reminded of it again and again. What circumstances is the Lord bringing into your life? You need to remind yourself that he has already provided everything you need through the judgment that he poured out on his son once for all so that we might drink of the living water unto eternity. And I had to close with this. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see, he has already supplied everything we need, most importantly, through the gospel, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We need fear nothing. We need to complain about nothing because we already have everything. God is present and he has already provided for our greatest need if we have trusted him as our Savior.